Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? As a child, I always battled to find the courage and confidence in myself to find purpose. I found counselling an incredibly powerful tool to help me break through my limiting self-beliefs. This week's podcast is kindly sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's a professional counselling service done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselling network, which may not be available locally in many areas. And what is even better, the service is available worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash PBN, that's better H-E-L-P, and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. A special offer today for PBN listeners to get 10% off your first month. Check out betterhelp.com forward slash PBN. We have to be compassionate to each other. Be compassionate to your fellow vegans. And if you are running around being the vegan police, look in the mirror because the chances are that you're not 100% perfect in everything you do. Hi, plant friends, and welcome to another episode of the PBN podcast. It's great to have you here. This week, we meet Jane Vellis-Mitchell. She's a television and social media journalist and author. She's the founder and driving force behind Jane Unchained, a digital news network for animal rights and the vegan lifestyle, which uses more than 60 volunteer contributors from around the world to showcase vegan festivals, animal rights conferences, organizations, vegan restaurants, cooking, and much, much more. In 2007, Jane wrote the nonfiction Secrets Can Be Murder, What America's Most Sensational Crimes Tell Us About Ourselves. In 2009, she released her memoir on addiction recovery, I Want, My Journey from Addiction, Overconsumption to a Simpler, Honest Life. In 2011, Jane released a third book titled Addict Nation, An Intervention for America. As a vegan, Jane is well known for her animal rights advocacy and environmentalism. Jane is an absolute linchpin of the vegan community and the activist and outreach community worldwide. She's a dear friend of mine, and I absolutely loved hearing her stories. They were really wonderful. I know you're going to love this episode as much as I did. As always, if you do enjoy it, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on iTunes, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Thanks a lot, and let's get to the episode. Hi, Jane. Welcome to the PBN Podcast. It's so great to sit down and chat with you. It's great to talk to you, Robbie. I love you. I love talking to you. What have you found is the best way to get people to switch over to veganism? There's no one way. I say throw all the vegan spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. You know, I'm 23 years sober, and I didn't think I could go a day without drinking. I tried for many years. I'm not going to drink today. I'm not going to drink today. And I drank every night. And then I hit bottom, and I had this psychic shift. And I realized it's not that I won't drink tonight. It's that I don't have to. They say sometimes it happens slowly, and sometimes it happens quickly. And it's the same thing with veganism, which I call food sobriety. Sometimes the process of going vegan can be very slow. 
Sometimes people, boom, bing, and all of a sudden it hits them. We don't get a pass on this. We're killing all these animals. It's killing the environment. It's contributing to world hunger. It's bad for us. It's a leading cause of our leading killers. So you have the power here. This is what I love about this, is you actually are empowered. You every day, three times a day, you have the power to make a difference. So it's been a long time coming. I've been wanting to sit down and, and hear your story in detail for a long, long time. We've uh, known each other for a few years now, and uh, we've caught up over you know various conferences over the years. But it's always been a bit manic and a bit crazy with loads of things going on. And it's nice to be able to have a, a bit of a quiet space with you to sit down and hear your story. It's always very dramatic. We meet each other at these animal <laughs> rights conferences and it's like, come to this room immediately and yeah. speak to you. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And I need to videotape you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to, you know, continuing because obviously we're in the grips in the grips of a pandemic at the moment. So actually, there's plenty of opportunity to sit down and have many conversations. We will. You're yeah. going to be sick of me. <laughs> <laughs> I brought you a vegan dish from a fabulous restaurant called Candle 79. And guess what this is, Anderson? Oh, it's like spaghetti. Well, it's well... spaghetti and wheat balls. Spaghetti and wheat balls. I mean, there's so many jokes I could just say right off the top of my head, but... Yes, Terrence? Uh, have okay. you ever had a wheat ball? I have not. No, I, I have not. I'm going to play this one very straight. I have not had a wheat ball. No, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't even get the double entendre that you. Check it out. You're not trying the... There it is. That's very good. He tried the spaghetti, not the balls. We're going to get them. This is going to be a fantastic adventure. And when you go vegan, I'm going to How long a party. have you been vegan? I've been vegan about 17 years. Aren't you hungry all the time? <laughs> no, I'm happy all the time. You know what? It's really a philosophy. And I say I want peace for the world. And peace begins right here on your plate. You're part of a cult, aren't you? You're, this is like a cult. <laughs> it's a fun cult. Is We're... anybody else a vegan here in the room? There's uh, one. Okay. okay. So before we dive into all the wonderful things that you've been doing with your life at the moment, let's go way back in time and let's hear your vegan story. How did it all begin for you and where, where did you discover this lifestyle? Well, I would have to go all the way back to my mother, who was born on the island of Vieques, which is part of the Puerto Rican Commonwealth, and it's a beautiful island in the Caribbean. And when she was a child, she had a pet pig that was her friend. She loved this pig. She didn't realize the pig was a food pig destined to be slaughtered for food. And she came home from school one day and the pig was slaughtered, had been slaughtered, and she literally fainted. And when she awoke, she was disgusted and she shunned meat. So she came to New York at the age of 12, alone on a boat to meet her mother who had gone before her. And she became a very successful uh, Latin dance troupe leader. She had a Latin dance troupe called the Nita Velez Dancers. They were the last of the vaudevilles. They played hotels in the Caribbean and North America. And uh, she even played the Palace Theater. And then she met my dad, who was an Irish-American advertising executive straight out of the show Mad Men. Yeah. And they, uh, what they had in common is they were both great dancers and they loved to uh, stop the show and have everybody gather around them when they danced. 
And uh, anyway, he then shunned meat. He had been a big meat and potatoes guy, but uh, when he married my mother, he gave up meat. We we thought we were vegetarians, but we weren't. We ate fish, we ate eggs, we ate cheese, we ate we had consumed milk. But at least I didn't think that chicken wings fell from trees. In fact, I didn't know what a chicken wing was. We didn't have meat in the house. We weren't strict in the sense of we had a country house and when people came to visit, if they brought meat, we didn't stop them the way today I would stop somebody from bringing meat into my home. But uh, we were definitely on the journey. My mother was very avant-garde. She was one of the first hyphenates who kept her name and added my dad's name. Uh, She was doing yoga in the 40s. I was kind of on the journey. And then as I became a journalist, I went to New York University. And uh, my first job was in Fort Myers, Florida. Then I worked in Minneapolis. Then I worked in Philadelphia. And when I was in Philadelphia, somebody handed me a tape of a a head injury experiment on baboons that was so horrific. This was torture in a lab. They were playing rock music. They were laughing. They were bashing these baboons' heads in with giant cement bricks that were, I don't know how many tons, and they were laughing. And I said, this is pure evil. I just looked at it and said, this is like the most evil thing I've ever seen in my life. It's something, we have to do something about it. But I wasn't in a position to do a story about it. And uh, anyway, ended up working in New York, uh, my hometown, WCBS-TV. Then I got a job in LA, which is where I live now. And I was on uh, the Paramount Studios lot, uh, having a fabulous time as an anchor in Los Angeles when in walked Howard Lyman to do an interview. This is 20-some years ago. And uh, he was the famous cattle rancher turned vegan animal activist, the guy who had run a a big cattle operation and he had gotten very ill. And as he was going into surgery, he made a pact with God and he said, God, if you get me out of this surgery alive, I'm going to reveal the secret horrors of this cattle meat industry. So he ended up going on the Oprah show She said famously, that just stopped me cold from eating another burger. The cattleman sued her. She won, but he became famous for 15 minutes. He's still one of my heroes. And he was doing a book tour and I interviewed him. And after the interview, he and his publicist, a very fierce animal activist named Mar Nealon, walked up to my little cubicle and they said, we hear you're a vegetarian. And I said, yes. And they said, do you eat dairy? And I kind of hung my head because he had just explained that the babies are ripped from the mothers and they scream and they grieve and the the boys are thrown in veal crates or they're shot or left to die and just all the horrible things. And so I hung my head and I said, yes, I, I still do eat dairy. And the two of them pointed their finger right at my nose and they said, <laughs> liquid meat, like that. <laughs> And that was the moment I went vegan. They shamed me. Thank you. Thank you for shaming me. So, you know, when people say, oh, be so very polite and don't shame people, don't, you know, sometimes they're right, but sometimes they're wrong. If they had said, for example, well, we feel like maybe you should consider giving up dairy because of the, it may not have gotten to me, but the way they pointed their finger right at my nose and said, liquid meat, <laughs> left an impression. <laughs> 
That's a really great story. I mean, yeah, I remember you hearing that story when I was um, at the animal rights conference with you, and I just thought to myself that 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 belongs on a t-shirt, liquid meat. <laughs> it is liquid meat. It is. I mean, the horrors of the dairy industry, more really than the meat industry, are it's just something that's hard to describe to people unless you've actually experienced and seen it. Because, you know, we'll go into it in a bit more detail, but you know, th- these these industries are so hidden and so careful in the way that they produce their products because, the, you know, the capitalist world has quickly created these monster uh, factory farms, which, of course, we're all fighting against. But before we go into sort of the horrors of factory farming, let's talk a bit about like your childhood and, and how food you know, played a part in your in your lifestyle. You're obviously, you know, you said your your family come from uh, two different parts of the world. So there were two different sort of food cultures there coming together. How did food sort of play a part in your childhood, having two parents from very different parts of the world? Well, my mother was in show business, so she didn't cook at all. Uh, she knew how to make two things, paella and spaghetti with clam sauce. And as I said, we we weren't vegan then, even though we thought we were, we didn't even know the word vegan, frankly, but we thought we were vegetarian, but we really weren't. But we didn't eat meat, animals. Uh, we ate fish who are animals, so we were pescatarian, let's put it that way. But my mom was a famously awful cook. We went out to dinner every night. My dad, who had served in World War II in Africa, knew how to make one dish, and that was African curry, which was actually quite good. And every so often, I wistfully think of maybe recreating it because he would put all these little bowls out and each one had a different thing, like peanuts and peppers and chutney and uh, bananas. And uh, and then it was like a bed of rice. And it was actually delicious, but those were the three things my parents between them knew how to cook. We went out to dinner almost every night. It was, you know, I grew up in midtown Manhattan across the street from Carnegie Hall. My mother was very showbiz. My dad was very advertising. It was a very interesting upbringing. We didn't even think about cooking. You know, it just wouldn't even cross our minds. And then they were into all sorts of, they were super trendy. And so they were into all sorts of fads, I would say. So you'd open the refrigerator and the strangest things were in there. There was no, the normal foods. Uh, In fact, for quite a while, they went macrobiotic, which now I can appreciate. But at the time when I was a little kid, I remember looking at these snowballs that they would have in in the grocery stores that were just pure sugar. And I said, (laughs) when I grow up, I'm going to eat every single one of those that I can get my hands on because they would never let me eat sweets. And uh, then with the macrobiotic diet, my dad was a little eccentric. He got a little crazy about the only eating fruits in season. And we went through some, the worst fight my parents ever had was my mother bought grapefruits and it was the winter time. And I think it was fueled by a lot of martinis, frankly, but it was a knockdown drag out fight. And now I look back at it, I go, these crazy people that raised me. They were, they were fun. They were a lot of fun. We had a lot of cocktail parties. They were extremely social. And I am also a recovering alcoholic. I'm 25 years sober. And I know my sobriety date, which is April Fool's Day, very appropriately, but I don't know my vegan date. I wish I knew the exact date. And one day I'll go and research it and find out when exactly Howard Lyman strolled into the studio. But um, it was after I got sober. And I also came out around that time too. So I was a busy, I was a busy girl. You were, you made a lot of big changes. Yeah. 
And I continue to change all the time. In fact, back before I came out and I was dating a guy, he said, dating you is like dating a different woman every month. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, that that's the thing, like, you know, be, becoming, you know, coming out and sort of, you know, transforming your life. Because I, I came out when I was quite young. I came out when I was 17. I was dating a girl at the time and uh, I went and had lunch with her and uh, told her that, you know, I might be bisexual. And uh, she she flipped and uh, went and called her mother and then her mother called my mother um and uh yeah it, let's just say it wasn't pretty wow. <laughs> but uh coming out tell us about your sort of coming out experience and obviously you know was your family quite conservative they How were all of- over the map my right. family was so kooky in a lot of ways my dad was an arch conservative republican in fact he did advertising some advertising for the nixon re-election campaign And I remember it, even though I was very young, uh, because we had a Nixon's the one bumper sticker on our car and people would constantly drive by and give us the finger. And that's the only reason why I remember that there was this Nixon's the one bumper sticker. Meanwhile, my mother was very much a closet liberal. And I think she would lie to my father about who she was going to vote for and then go into the voting booth and vote for whoever (laughs) she wanted. And when he passed away, after she passed away, she sort of came out as a Democrat. <laughs> mm, wow. But uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it's funny because I'm watching this documentary about Bobby Kennedy and it was just bringing back childhood memories and bringing back memories of like I was uh, budding like a tween teenager when the, the anti-war movement was so huge. And I remember going to these incredible marches and in fact, Uh, They were the size of like the Women's March, which I also attended uh, after the unfortunate inauguration of the person who's in the White House right now and hopefully won't be for much longer. But, you know, we'll have to see Uh, some of the most dramatic marches I've ever been to, despite all of that, were animal rights marches. I mean, some of the marches that direct action everywhere have with their flares and their music they're truly like performance art. They're they're fabulous. And it's very exciting to be a part of that when you're marching. And, and what's so funny is the media, even though they're incredibly dramatic and fabulous, completely ignores them. Not to say they don't get press coverage, but they don't get press, press coverage for their massive marches, which is one of the reasons why I do what I do today. Prime 9 News awarded the golden light for the Southland's best newscast. Jerry Dunphy, Jane Velez Mitchell, Carl Bell's brother, and Gary Cruz on sports. This is Prime 9 News at 8, Southern California's most honored newscast. Before we talk about what you do today, let, tell us about how you got into broadcasting, because that's obviously, it's it's quite a, a baptism, it can be quite a baptism by fire, getting involved in the media world. Um, was that something you always wanted to do? You know, how did you, how did you become involved in, you know, broadcasting and TV and radio and stuff like that? Well, it was a combination of things. My mom was kind of a stage mother, but a nice one, not one of those evil stage mothers that you hear about. She definitely wanted me to be in showbiz. She wanted me to be a ballerina at one point, and that was a real disaster. (laughs) I honestly had to go to therapy because of being subjected to ballet classes for quite a few years where they would make me like the gnome in the Four Seasons to introduce winter. You know, uh, I wasn't... (laughs) cut out to be a ballerina. If you took one look at me, I might've been a great tennis player or something, but you know, I'm, I'm a sporty lesbian. 
<laughs> and uh, my dad was in advertising, and I actually would work sometimes at his firm uh, in the summertime. I, and so I was in the classified ad department working, uh, writing up classified ads. And so it was kind of a combination. I wanted to be a syndicated columnist, but then I would go to protest for various things. I was leafleting. Basically, nothing's changed. I'm still leafleting, and I was leafleting then. So you got the bug really young, the the social justice, like, you know, at what point did you suddenly think, or did you realize, you know, I'm seeing all this stuff in the world, I want to do something about it? Did you have, was that quite young, that feeling? Yes, I was very, I was argumentative. Basically, I was looking for a cause to argue about so I could argue with people. But I remember I would leaflet outside high school. I don't even remember exactly what I was leafleting about. And we had tables. For a while, I was a libertarian. I mean, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that, but it is a very juvenile philosophy in a way. Libertarians believe tax is theft. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's it's more like individualism. There's parts of it that are interesting. And you have to understand that, or you don't have to understand, but I, I was in this household where my father was really an arch conservative Republican, which was so strange. He was married to this woman who's Puerto Rican. And it was, it was a big mishmash, you know, and, uh, he was also a social climber and it, it typical New York, New York, people who grow up in, in Manhattan often have these very strange stories because some of the most eccentric people seem to gravitate there like a lot of beautiful people gravitate to Hollywood. A lot of very eccentric people gravitate to New York. But um, yeah, so I was kind of trying to get away from my father's beliefs, even though we would argue a lot about things like the Equal Rights Amendment and the Vietnam War. But philosophically, I thought the idea of, I'd read the Ayn Rand novels, Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead. And then uh, what happened was, First of all, I remember really having huge arguments about the, I hope I pronounce this right, the My Lai Massacre, where as a teenager, I was like, oh no, this is really awful. This is bad. This is evil. Once again, I had that moment where I go, this is evil. I have to, I have to rise up against this. And I basically kind of left the libertarian philosophy and went more toward the uh, anti-war hippie crowd. And so I was sort of flipping from being sort of with the young Republicans and then flipping over to being the exact opposite. And I never was really suited for those Republicans for many reasons, but it was sort of the milieu that I was in because of the circles in which my dad traveled. You know, like we would go to election night for candidates. I've forgotten all about this. I actually applied to be uh, at the um, a White House Conference on Youth when Richard Nixon was in office, and I got accepted. And I went to the White House Conference on Youth, which was a bleep show of just total insanity. <laughs> you know, like FBI men walking around pretending to be hippies while all the wow. hippies were getting high. And I mean, it was just a fiasco, but it was Richard Nixon's attempt to appeal to young people. Didn't go very far, but I guess suffice it to say, I quickly grew out of all that. And I remember reading something about Ayn Rand and I was very young. I mean, I I was not even a teenager. I was like a tween. And I read that um, Ayn Rand is a Russian uh, novelist and Russian novelists often have a character epitomized not so much a three-dimensional character with all sorts of nuances and contradictions, but they sort of just epitomize one type 
one aspect of personality. So that's why you have these dramatic characters like Howard Rourke, the the uh, architect in The Fountainhead, and John Galt, the hero in the Atlas Shrugged, that they epitomize more of one aspect of personality. So once I read, once I read that, it kind of destroyed my fascination with it. And I was like, oh yeah, of course, nobody's going to just sit and read books for five years because somebody wanted to adjust the architectural plans on their perfect office building. I'm probably getting very far afield of what you She's, want to talk about. She was quite she was quite controversial though, wasn't she, Anne Rind? Like her, yeah. her views of yes. people and sort of the selfish nature of human beings were very controversial. The PC thing to say is that we're all kind and compassionate beings and that human beings are good at their core and for the most part I do believe that. But you know, some of the things I've read about her and and her view of humanity, you know, sometimes they do really sort of ring true. If you've ever been on a busy train or a you know an airplane that's, you know, in free fall, <laughs> people are all for themselves most of the time in, in pressing situations. So it can sometimes you know, you can sometimes question whether we are kind of compassionate beings in our nature, in our nature, and in our core, or not. I mean, what do you think? Do you think human beings are naturally compassionate creatures? Do you think it's sort of beaten out of us, or do you think, you know, do you think we have to learn it? That's a really heavy question. It really kind of depends on what side of the bed I wake up in the morning. Because <laughs> sometimes I think. Yeah, people are good. And a lot of times I'm like, oh my God, I'm embarrassed to be a human being. So I think that we have seen human beings do absolutely horrific, horrific things. Slavery, the Holocaust, uh, pogroms throughout history, um, just terrible, terrible, terrible things, throwing virgins in uh, cenotes. But uh, then you see people do incredibly compassionate things, even in those times. I I think it boils down to the only thing that's required for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And I, I don't think that most people are evil. I think that they're maybe morally lazy and it's out of sight, out of mind. It's very important to face uncomfortable truths. And I think that is... That is the big problem with even our movement is people don't want to look and see the factory farms. I tried to get a friend of mine who's not vegan to go to a vigil. Uh, And she said, this is a quote, I don't want to watch a snuff film. And I thought, really? Okay, so that's your mentality. Hmm. You know, it it was very disappointing. And I thought, wow. If you can't even look at it, then please don't buy it. Don't participate in this this horror. So I really feel that it's like Charles Dickens said, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. I think people can do really compassionate things and they can do mm. really horrible things. It's a scale, isn't it? I think I think because there's so many humans on earth today, you know, 7.8 billion of us and growing exponentially every day, there there's no one size fits all you know scenario with human beings we're so diverse and i think maybe that is our greatest uh gift and our greatest sort of curse as well is that we are all so different each one of us yeah you know i think it, it to me it is a gift as well more than anything else because the uniqueness of human beings could be our salvation uh, uh, but also not just our uniqueness but our ability to 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 shift and change 
from someone who you know you could say perpetuates the most horrific evils to someone who could completely turn their life around you know we know of many people who are butchers um and you know hunters who have seen the light and have gone from you know seeing animals as mere objects uh you know to do with as they will to now being full-time vegan advocates and activists you know you know of people who have committed atrocities um in war who've turned around and seen the light and have, have then devoted their entire lives to trying to make sure that kind of thing never happens again so even though I think you know evil is is intrinsic in human, I think the point is what you're saying is that the sort of the good and the evil is intrinsic within all of us, and it really depends on what side of the bed we get up in the morning, right? As you said, like, and our lives and our life state and our experiences and what we've been through as people, because I think ultimately, you know, we we are our experiences. You wouldn't have potentially have gone vegan if those two people hadn't come up to you and and were so strict with you. Maybe maybe it would have happened later. But, you know, we are we are merely a product of, you know, our, our environment. Do you agree? I don't think we're merely a product of our environment, but I think it's multi-determined, right? If I don't look, for example, at the fact that I'm a recovering alcoholic, okay, uh, I am genetically predisposed on my father's side. There's a lot of alcoholism. And my father was a high-functioning alcoholic. And so I'm genetically predisposed. There's also the environmental factor that I saw a lot of drinking and cocktail parties and people drank around me. And I remember uh, my sister, who's on my mother's side, she's my half sister, took me, she's much older than me. She took me to London actually for the summer. And uh, I was supposed to take care of her kids. And I was always flabbergasted that she and her husband never drank. And I was like, what's wrong with them? Because in my household, everybody drank. So it took me a long time to realize that not everybody drank three or four martinis every night and then some wine. So I think that for me, if you use the alcoholism metaphor, which I love to use when it comes to meat eating, which I also feel is addictive, it's addictive behavior. I mean, we are pre-programmed to consume sugar, salt, and fat to get us through times of famine. And the industries have figured out how to manipulate that natural craving uh, to pack so much sugar, salt, and fat into, for example, a burger shake and fries that you are going to become hooked on it just like people become hooked on heroin. And we know that cheese has an addictive component that nature introduces to get calves to drink the mother's milk. So we're dealing with an addiction. And so uh, I do like to use the alcoholism metaphor because I have the dubious honor of being uh, an expert in addiction. And I wish I wasn't, but I am. So I, I do feel that what we're experiencing right now is a global addiction to meat and dairy. We really are. I mean, and and it and it's being perpetuated by a, a multi, you could say globally multi-trillion-dollar industry, who want to maintain the status quo. I mean, you you've obviously experienced addiction yourself, um, and successfully managed to get through it one day at a time. Jane, welcome to the program. What do you think is behind this craze of these uh, meatless options? Why now? Compassion and evolution, and we're running out of time. You've been talking about it. The fires in the Amazon, that's being caused largely by cattle ranchers and farmers clearing land for cattle or to grow food to feed 
farm animals. People don't realize that more than 70% of all soy is fed to farm animals. So essentially, and I outline this in a new documentary I just launched on Amazon Prime called Countdown to Year Zero. Check it out. We are giving planet Earth a buzz cut so that we can grow crops, not to feed people. People are dying of starvation and malnutrition, but to fatten up farm animals, to fatten up pigs and cows and chickens and turkeys and okay. lambs. Jane, but let's talk about the scale we're talking about here. The meatless meat industry, based on the research that I did, only makes up less than 1% of the product volume of the meat industry. Is that enough to make the kind of dent you're talking about? Look, when we first started using cell phones, not everybody had them. Now everybody does. On the way here, I took the liberty of, there it is, whipping out a Beyond Meat burger from my fridge. Let me tell you something. It looks like meat. It smells like meat. It tastes like meat. The only thing that's missing is the suffering and the climate change and the human world hunger. Do you think humanity as a whole will be able to move past its addiction of animal products? Do you think there is a do you think there is a future for a world where humans aren't consuming these things because obviously they you know I've been not been vegan that long only 7 years but if I think back to when I did consume meat I absolutely loved it I would eat it every day three times a day if I could and when I was lived on the farm you know I would have steak for breakfast obviously I look back in horror thinking about you know the animals that I consumed but the actual visceral sensorial experience is it's it's not, you know what I mean? There's nothing quite like it. Um, I'm glad that I don't do it anymore because I know the damage it's doing to my body, to the planet and to animals. But it is almost, it's almost just like a drug because obviously yeah. taking drugs feels great. Drinking alcohol feels great, but it's not good for us. <laughs> I do feel that if we are going to survive as a species, we have to move away. And that's why I did a documentary on Dr. Silas Rao because I was in Texas at the Rowdy Girl sanctuary, which are former cattle ranchers who turned vegan and turned their cattle operation into a vegan sanctuary. And I heard this man get up and actually he was speaking to a pretty empty crowd because it's a giant field and everybody was shopping and eating their vegan food. It was a big festival. And he said, hi, we're going to create a vegan world and we're going to do it by 2026. We know why we have to do it. All we need to do is figure out how. And that was Dr. Silas Rao. And when he said that, I said, wow, this is the person I've been waiting to hear my whole life. Because until you can even state what you want to achieve, how on earth are you going to achieve it? So he stated the grand intention, the goal, the mission, a vegan world. And he put a by when. We all know until you put a deadline on something, nothing gets done. He said, we're going to do it by 2026. And then he said, we have to do it by 2026 or we're going to have an ecological apocalypse because by 2026, we will have virtually at the trajectory we're going, no wildlife vertebrates left on this planet, except maybe for squirrels and rats uh, because we're killing wildlife at such a rapid pace. And I was just so taken with everything he said. And uh, the documentary grew out of, he invited me, I met him and I talked to him and he invited me to go to Costa Rica. Actually, he sort of issued an invitation. Anybody want to go to Costa Rica and see a former cattle ranch that became a, uh, a forest, reforested? 
And so my girlfriend at the time, who's still a good friend, and I said, yeah, let's go. So we went to Costa Rica and started shooting a video with a good camera, my one good camera. Everything he said was like a gem, everything that came out of his mouth. He said, look how we have reforested so quickly this cattle ranch, and this is what we need to do around the world. We need to take all the farmland, because most of the farmland is being used to grow food, not for people who are only 7.8 billion humans, but for the 70 billion cows, pigs, chickens, turkeys, and goats that we kill every year for food. So if we stopped having to grow food for farm animals, we could reforest all those those uh, billions of acres, and we could then grow trees. Trees absorb carbon. Carbon is what makes the earth harder. So if we reforested a good portion of the earth, we'd begin to reduce the temperature back to where it was 200 years ago, and we can avoid an ecological apocalypse. So my head was exploding as he was explaining all this. He's completely brilliant. And uh, so I ended up doing a whole documentary about him that is called Countdown to Year Zero, and it's on Amazon Prime. And I urge everybody to check it out because he explains why we have a choice. We're at a fork in the road. Either we go plant-based or uh, it's very possible for the human species to go extinct. You know, we're so arrogant. We think we're somehow gods, but we're not. If, If the planet gets too hot to support life, including human life, we will not be able to exist. Maybe Jeff Bezos will be able to get into a spaceship and with uh, Elon Musk and take off for Mars or wherever they're going, but the, most of us are going to die. And uh, already in some parts of the world, it's hitting 140 degrees, which is not a livable temperature. Do you think that that's necessarily a bad, th- I mean, to be fatalistic and to be a little bit depressing, like, do you think it's not necessarily a bad thing for humans to die out? Because, you know, we have had uh, a good run on this planet, 200,000 years since modern humans first set foot or, or emerged, you know, into into this and to the biosphere and you know look what we've done with it you know in in just only just under a hundred years we've w- almost wiped the the surface of the earth clear of many forms of of life non non-human life poisoned rivers uh, oil slicks in the oceans killed uh, you know huge amounts of wh- uh, whales which are precious precious beings because they just really are i mean i i've seen videos of them recently and i've sort of sat there almost in tears really thinking of and and wondering about the beauty of these beings and 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 the sort of stories they must be able to tell us if we could speak with them and the you know the deforestation that i mean there's just a list as long as my arm and it and and it really makes me question you know what are we trying to save you know we obviously want to save the planet and we want to save the animals but ultimately you know most people just want to save themselves want to save our species but It's a very hard question. I guess I wonder what Anne Rand would say about it. Now, listen, I'm no longer, and I I was like 12. I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm being truthful. That was my journey. But it is, you know, there is some truth. There was truth in 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 some of her words about, you know, human beings and their sort of selfish nature. That you know, look what we've look what we've done. I'd like to have a romantic view of us as a species. And of course, there's so many wonderful passionate, compassionate people on this planet. But I, you know, I do question whether, you know, the damage that we've done, it, it's too late. And I love Celeste and he's an incredible man. But I think 2026, what is that? That's like five years away? 
Um, well, he, you know, when he says we're going to have a vegan world, it doesn't mean we're going to have like vegan police running around questioning whether <laughs> your belt is leather uh, or pineapple leather. It, yeah. It's basically that the the tipping point will have been reached where yes. we will have normalized veganism. So when you go into a restaurant, it'll be more likely that the outlier will be meat as opposed to uh, currently the outlier is still vegan food, vegetables nuts, grains, fruit. And we do see uh, changes occurring. Now, one of the things that he says is that rapid social change does occur. And when when a change comes, it can happen, boom, very rapidly. And he uses examples like gay marriage, which everybody thought was impossible, you know, a few decades ago. And now here it is. He uses the moon landing. He uses uh, various comparisons. We have to believe that we could do it. If you can't believe, you know, we can always become disillusioned, but let's believe and let's move toward the goal. And that's what I do every day. I wake up and I say, I'm going to stay out of the results. This is 12 step lingo. Do the next indicated thing, stay out of the results and just see what happens because we could always become disillusioned. Let's not start out disillusioned. You know, let's give it our best shot so that if, if I'm lying on a, hot pavement in a few years and it's too hot to walk across the street and I'm dying, at least I'll say to myself, I gave it my best shot. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the thing. If we look back at what we've achieved over the last, you know, four or five years, there's been huge change, huge, huge, huge change in food technology, in in vegan food products, in vegan fashion. Um, And there are more vegans now than they've ever been in history. So We are definitely doing something right. If you can go through life causing less suffering to yourself, to the environment, and to animals, why wouldn't you? It's a no-brainer. The smart money is starting to realize this. That's why the Beyond Meat initial public offering has been the most successful IPO on the stock market since the 2008 financial crisis. Everybody, the smart money is starting to realize what we're doing by killing 70 billion. The estimates are anywhere from 56 billion to 70 billion. Some people say it's more than that. Farm animals every year who are just like our dogs and cats. It's madness. And you know what's driving it? What's driving it are the young people who are not as brainwashed and conditioned by traditional media. They're on social media, they're on their phones, they're seeing the pig gestation crates, they're seeing the vigils, which are based out of Canada, the visionary Anita Krines of the SAVE movement, holding a vigil outside every slaughterhouse. Let let me ask you about the nutritional value. Are we absolutely 100% positive that this stuff is good for us to eat? Let me tell you something. The fact that it's not meat makes it a lot healthier. A lot of people don't talk about the fact that processed meat, we're talking hot dogs, uh, sausages, bacon, it has been determined to be cancer-causing, not by me, but by the World Health Organization. I urge everybody, look it up. Processed meat, which is how most people eat a lot of meat, causes cancer. I have to say, the pandemic, I believe is a huge opportunity for us to really, even the mainstream media now is finally talking about slaughterhouses, which they pretended didn't exist for a long time, right? And now because the slaughterhouse workers are dying, not just in the United States, but around the world, 
they're starting to see the dark underbelly of slaughterhouses and they're starting to talk about it. Now here in, a, in the United States, they still call them meatpacking plants. Like somebody's putting a stake in their suitcase to go on vacation. They don't even like to say the word slaughterhouse, but they are talking about it. And they're, the New York Times is finally, you know, publishing articles like one by Jonathan Safran Foer, who was basically saying the pandemic is just an example of how our abuse of animals got us into this and we're going to have to give up meat. Uh, they had another one entitled something to the effect of the end of meat is near. So I do feel that it's it's forcing people, including ranchers who are having in some cases to quote unquote depopulate their animals. Uh, they're having to get out of denial too. And so I think that people are starting to really realize there's something very wrong with this industry. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes not caring about the animals, but caring about, for example, the slaughterhouse workers dying, right? Or environmental racism. You know, we have the Black Lives Matter movement that's so huge right now. Joe Biden just picked an African-American woman to run as a vice president on his ticket. Uh, so we're we're having an uprising in many ways. We had the Me Too movement. So disenfranchised in general, uprising, women, people of color. And maybe those are the precursors to the uprising of everyone so that we can have compassion for all beings and not let not let compassion end at our fingertips or at our backyards. The landscape is definitely changing and shifting. And that's the, that's the interesting thing about politics. And one thing that I do find particularly curious, especially about American politics, is that care for the environment and that care for other people um, and the care for animals. You know, why does it seem to be a, a left or right wing thing or, you know, liberal or conservative thing? Surely caring about the environment or caring about the future of our planet for future generations should be something everybody cares about. Why is it that in, in American culture, as soon as you start talking about Black Lives Matter or the environment or the, the rights of animals, you're, you're sort of shouted at as a left wing liberal crybaby? Like why? Well, I'd you know, like to say that both parties have been pretty horrible. I mean, the Democrats were running around having steak fries giant steak gatherings where they were all eating steak and talking about the environment. And um, there's many, many people who are marching for the climate who aren't, who are not anywhere near vegan. I mean, you, you even saw people going to climate marches against fossil fuels, which honestly, if you ask half of them, they wouldn't even know how to define a fossil fuel and then going and eating a hamburger. So I will say that Joaquin Phoenix, sometimes there's moments that change things. Uh, when the Vietnam War, when when the public sentiment turned, was when uh, the famous anchor, Walter Cronkite, finally said something. And he didn't say a lot. He just finally gave his opinion a little bit uh, because that was a no-no back in those days. But he just couldn't finally, after all the carnage, help himself. Well, Joaquin Phoenix getting up at the Golden Globes, at the SAG Awards, at the Oscars, and talking about animals being killed for food. I think that was a major turning point. It was a huge turning point. And we were a little part of that because after, I believe it was the SAG Awards, one of the three, it was the SAG Awards, I believe, he went to a vigil. And guess what? Jane Unchained was going live at the vigil, not me, but one of our many contributors. And she, Renee Marinkovich, whose, whose name, whose brand is Animal Hostage Negotiator, that's what we call her. Anyway, she goes up to Joaquin Phoenix and, and asks him about being there that night. And it was picked up by People Magazine, by ET Canada, by 
Newsweek by Vanity Fair and what he said to her on uh, our live video, because there were no mainstream media cameras there, got picked up everywhere around the world. It was our biggest publicity yet for our nonprofit news organization. And it just shows you that if people say, well, social media, no, social media is the key, the key to spreading the word. You know, during uh, whatever times in history you want to look at before the arrival of the internet, people use leaflets. That's all they had. So they used them. Well, this is our leaflet. This is our way to get around the mainstream media. Advertiser-based mainstream media is not going to cover our movement because look at the TV commercials, meat, dairy, and pharmaceuticals. Social media is definitely the way to go. And the young people are on social media. They're not watching television in the old fashioned way. (laughs) With Jane Unchained. So tell us a little brief history on how it all began. Because, you know, you you had 16 and a half million video views as of 2017. So I can imagine it's a hell of a lot more now in 2020. We've grown in a lot of ways. But yeah, I'll tell you how it started. I was a journalist. I worked after I worked in local news. I, I went to syndicated television. I worked at Celebrity Justice. And I started doing animal rights stories there with PETA. I I would talk to somebody from PETA and we'd figure out a way to get a celebrity and uh, justice because that was the that was the criteria for the the story. Harvey Levin, who now runs TMZ, was the head. That was his precursor show. And he would say in the morning, where's the celebrity? Where's the justice? And so I would work with a great guy from PETA uh, who would get me at least a story idea from celebrities, maybe not the celebrities themselves. And then I do celebrity and justice. I even managed to interview Robert Redford about military sonar hurting the whales, believe it or not. And um, so then I ended up uh, covering the Michael Jackson trial. I got a lot of global coverage. I was on Larry King Live and I started filling in for Nancy Grace. And then I got my own show on CNN Headline News. And uh, I very innocently asked... Uh, I said, would you mind if I did a little animal segment once a week? And uh, they said, no, we don't see a problem with that. Maybe they thought I was going to do pet adoptions, but I started doing hardcore animal rights stories, pig gestation crates and tail docking and uh, factory farming. I brought on a lot of the heads of the main organizations, and I also would cover the budding vegan companies. Like I interviewed Josh Tetrick, and he told me, he said, of, of Just Mayo. He said, I used that video that you did, that, that interview, and I went and you know raised money and it helped my company. And he said, I'll, I'll always have a soft spot, my heart for you, because you helped me out at that time because he was just getting started. So after six years doing that, we had a very good run with my show. It wrapped up. So I decided since they had given me my social media, I left on very good terms. And one of the executives even said, you're very passionate about animals. You should do that. And uh, I said, okay. So uh, I started going to protests in New York and I noticed immediately something is missing. Uh, They would always say, oh, the media said they were coming, but there was a breaking news story. And I'm rolling my eyes like, yeah, that's what they say when they don't want to cover something. (laughs) And so uh, people were going to extreme lengths to do these protests, sometimes in bitter cold, wearing sometimes half naked People weren't looking because it was so cold. They were just rushing to get indoors and nobody's documenting it. And I said, oh, okay, this is what I need to start doing. I need to start documenting these protests. And then my girlfriend at the time said, yeah, well, you can. Jane, you're unchained. And I said, oh, Jane's unchained. And so that we just created 
Shane Unshamed. And I started with a GoPro camera. And, and I'll, I'll just tell you, the first story I did, one of the very first, was a protest in nine-degree weather in Brooklyn outside the Staples Center against Ringling Brothers Barnum Bailey Circus. There were 200 people gathered, freezing. I remember I thinking, is this worth it? It was my first story because it was so cold. And um, my hand was shaking. And I said, yes, it's worth it. It's worth it. We'll do it. You know, again, do the next indicated thing. Stay out of the results. Well, guess what? Not, not because of us, but because of the incredible work of PETA, which is an incredibly, just an amazing organization, despite all the lies told by front groups for industry, which target PETA because they're so which effective. Which we, we should definitely talk about next. Yes. Um, anyway, Ringling Brothers at Barnum & Bailey Circus no longer exists. So that to me was just really so wonderful that one of the first stories I did was Amazing. about a story that eventually they were put out of business. And when did you start with Facebook Live? Because I, I think I remember seeing you broadcasting regularly. And then, you know, now today you've got tons of people uh, supporting Jane Unchained and broadcasting from all over the place. What happened was I've always been a live journalist, whether I was covering a trial because I covered crime for many years, even though, honestly, I have no interest in crime. All it did was leave me terrified. Seriously, I'm not a crime buff. I was in the news business for 38 years. Mm. Um, in fact, really old people come up to me and they say, I watched you when I was a little kid. <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. Um, anyway, yeah, Facebook Live. So I was always live. I had live shows. Mm. Mostly I was live. I heard about Facebook Live. I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. I don't have to edit anymore because I was staying up and, of course, making my girlfriend at the time stay up. Maybe that's why we're not going out anymore stay up till four in the morning editing stories, right? Because it wasn't live. You have to edit it. Uh, there was this Facebook Live. I wanted to see if it would work on my deck. I was having a vegan cookout and I had to happen to have some very glamorous people over. Katie Clary, who's Amer from America's Next Top Model. She's considered like one of the world's great beauties. And Simone Reyes, who's just a fabulous person who was uh, on a show. And she's just very fun. Anyway, I started going live and we had all these different kinds of vegan burgers. And I started noticing, oh my God, all these comments. Everybody wants to know who's that and what's the vegan burger and which brand do you like? And I thought, this is really, people are interested. So we started doing a daily. I figured I eat lunch. I'll just go live when I eat lunch. So now we have, oh my God, we, we have done, we've never missed a day since I started doing that. And not, it's not just me. It's, hundreds of people. We've had some of the top chefs in LA. And after doing it, uh, I guess about four years now, whatever Facebook Live came around, now we've grown into a TV show that's on Amazon Prime. And it's called New Day, New Chef. And uh, it's so successful that it's now, it's shown in the United States, in England and in Ireland. And they're now going to put it on in uh, Canada and Australia and New Zealand too. Amazing. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I've seen it on Amazon. We've, we've, we've watched it here and it's such a professional kind of setup and, you know, it's so great to see vegan food and vegan chefing appearing on, well, I consider Amazon prime and Netflix kind of mainstream TV because, you know, no one watches terrestrial television anymore. Everyone watches Netflix or Amazon. So um, exactly. congratulations on the, on, on that. It's just such a great achievement. 
Well, it was a team effort, and um, I, we have a new show now, a New Day New Chef Support and Feed. We're working with uh, Maggie Baird, who's Billie Eilish's mom and Phineas's mom, and uh, she's a vegan. So is Billie Eilish. So is Phineas, and um, Phineas. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, Maggie during the pandemic came up with a genius idea, give money to the vegan restaurants. The vegan restaurants will make food and then we'll give it to people who people are struggling. Who That's wonderful. And so we decided to profile her and also all the vegan restaurants, at least the vegan restaurants in LA that are involved. So it's, it's very exciting because to me, we shot it with robotic cameras. I have to give a shout out to my um, producer, executive producer, Eamon McChrystal. He's a former Irish tenor, multiple Emmy Award winner, and he is such a great producer. He He's insanely talented. And so we had already planned the season when the, the second season, when the pandemic hit, and uh, we didn't really know what to do. And then we heard about Maggie Baird and we collaborated to shoot it and he he used six robotic cameras in a contactless soundstage so that every chef who came in to cook was alone and completely safe and there was no interaction so that's amazing yeah so we managed to do that wow. and I, and I co-hosted from home and then we had celebrity co-hosts like you know Mrs. Patmore from Downton Abbey she plays mm-hmm. the cook she's yeah. Leslie Nichols she's a vegan so we had her and a whole bunch of other people who co-host from their homes, like Joanna Krupa and Emily uh, DeRavin from Lost and uh, Elaine Hendricks from Dynasty. He managed to pull this off. Uh, I, I have to give him a shout out. It's a great, it's a great opportunity, isn't it, to be able to reach so many people. Now, if we obviously contrast, you know, the old way of activism, which is direct action and leafleting and die-ins, and then we look at the number of people we can reach with social media and with traditional media like television. Do you still think there's a place in the world for things like direct action? Because I often, you know, I've been to protests and I've been to saves, you know, where we go and experience what animals are going through. I am, I'm not completely convinced that they are as effective as they could be. Obviously for the people who are there and when people first experience these the, you know, the terrors and the horrors that these animals are going through, it, it it deeply affects many people. But do you not think that we should be putting more of our time using social media? Or, or do you think it's not an either or that, it you know, that we should be just trying everything we can to sort of get the message out as far as possible? It's definitely not an either or. And in fact, along with Dr. Rao, another one of my heroes is Anita Krines, the founder of the SAVE movement. And she's another one who set an intention She's a PhD in Toronto, was walking her dog, came upon a pig truck. She's a student of Tolstoy who said he coined the whole concept of bearing witness. If you see suffering, you have a moral obligation not to turn away, but to get closer, see if you can help. And if you can't help to bear witness. And she made a vow to that pig. She made eye contact with, I will bear witness. I will come here to this corner and bear witness. And now there are more than 900 uh, saves around the world. And her and she's also morphed because she's a community, she has a PhD in community organizing. She's morphed into the health save and the climate save. And I'll tell you, yes, it's incredibly powerful, but also if you go and you see 
The biggest one is here in LA. Okay. Uh, down at a slaughterhouse right near downtown LA. A lot of people are going live. We made a commitment to go live at every vigil and we have gone almost every vigil down here in downtown LA, the pig vigil. Um, somebody, one of our contributors goes live. That's why we had somebody there when Joaquin Phoenix showed up after winning, I believe it was the SAG awards. And so we always try to have somebody there and we rotate because it's so gut-wrenching. I, I can't go week after week. I, I have total, total admiration for people who go continuously, but we have a whole rotating team that goes. So a lot of the people there are going live on their Facebook and their Instagram, not just us. And so uh, I think that- A combination, isn't it? So making sure that we combine our direct action or our protest with- social media, you know, uh, documenting, you know, documentary, that multi-pronged approach, you know, because obviously if you go and experience something, you know, it's just you experiencing it. Um, but if you have the the tools and the technology, and I think this is what I always say to people is that use your smartphone. Don't worry about, you know, learning some complicated camera, you know, your iPhone can shoot 4k now, you know, get your phone and and capture and document because ultimately that's what it is and that's obviously what you've lived your life as being you know documenting being there being a live live news anchor and telling the stories and ultimately this is our job isn't it to tell the story and to expose what is going on because i think you know the dairy industry the meat industry the egg industry they've built their empires um in in, in secrecy in many ways over the last several decades and now the walls are coming down because we have these technologies, these micro cameras and these drones where we can go and tell those stories. So absolutely um, every look, people are shooting movies on cell phones. The cell phone technology is so incredible for countdown to year zero. We use a lot of live videos that people shot and we just put them up and it's been shown on a giant screen and you see it just fine. And so absolutely, it's a combination of going there, bearing witness, and also comforting the pigs. That's the value of being there and being there for them. And I have to believe that they know that there are these people who care. It's so heartbreaking. But then documenting it and showing it to people, showing it to people. And then for those horrible people who say things like, Mmm, bacon. Because when we're going live, we're always seeing the comments. And there's usually like, you know, 50 comments of, oh, that's terrible. Poor babies. Oh my gosh. And then there's always the few, mmm, bacon. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to roast up a pork chop right now. So those people, I try to engage them and say, you know, uh, as Jean Bauer of Farm Sanctuary says, we accept people wherever they are on the journey, wherever they are on the journey. Some of those people who have the most sarcastic responses and the most heartless responses may actually be the people who break down and change faster because that's obviously a reaction formation. That's obviously them trying to make light of something because it bothered them on some level. Uh, the people who I really worry about are the people who have no reaction. They're just, eh, you know, those people scare me, frankly, but, um, I think it's very powerful to to go live. And, and you know, look, everything's valuable. Sanctuaries are valuable. I've talked to friends who were till I'm blue in the face who won't go vegan. And then they go to a sanctuary and they'll come back to me and say, oh, I'm vegan now. I went to 
farm sanctuary or Woodstock Animal Sanctuary, or, and they had an experience with some animal there, and suddenly they're different people. It's happened to me several times. Sanctuary is a wonderful place. It's, uh, I mean, you know, they do polarize people's opinions and views um, in the vegan community. I've had many people say that they're great educational sources where people can go and learn about the individual nature of farm animals. And then other people have said to me, they're just glorified petting zoos where they're not dealing with the problem that ultimately, you know, yes, you save 200 individuals, but there are 200,000 more uh, in a factory farm coming up behind them. And that actually, you know, they're they're just a band-aid they're not actually dealing with the problem but that being said you know who you know who else is going to step in and because a lot of these animals that end up in sanctuaries happen from you know slaughterhouse trucks falling over or um, farms burning down and animals being you know released so somebody has to step in and, and and support these animals so you can see why people, where people sit on both sides of the chain. But I think that the educational aspect of sanctuary is so important because nowhere else can modern humans go and form bonds or learn about farmed animals and their and their personalities. Because I think when you see cows in a field, you don't have an opportunity to connect with them and to touch them and to to experience them like you would experience a dog or a cat or, you know, a pet chicken, <laughs> a companion animal chicken, you know, because a lot of sanctuaries are struggling. You know, obviously, that we, we want a world where there are actually no sanctuaries in the sense that our farmed animals aren't being continuously funneled into these places obviously where they get to live their lives out you know in happiness and joy but i mean do you see a world where we won't need them eventually and that you know things like cultured meat will will replace the need for farmed animals well first of all sanctuaries are transforming and evolving thanks to the covid-19 pandemic they've been forced to think outside the box I have just done a whole bunch of interviews with uh, sanctuaries here who are doing incredible things. There's something called Goat to Meeting. And basically, when the pandemic hit, one uh, of the sanctuaries up in Northern California, which has a lot of tech people, said, we got to do something. We've lost all of our income stream. And they decided to offer a farm animal for a Zoom call. And it just took off. CNN covered it and... It was all over the place. And so they have had to hire people and they've got so much requests that they've they've now, in a spirit of generosity, shared the idea with 30 other sanctuaries who are there doing the same thing. It's called Goat to Meeting. And you can do it anywhere in the world, you know, because uh, we Zoom all over the world. So it's actually bringing, if, if people can't go to the sanctuary, it's bringing the sanctuary to the people. And they've reported that some fascinating conversations are happening where people and, and parents are doing it for birthday parties and the kids start asking about why are the animals there and where did they come from? And uh, they can explain, look at this, this hen's beak is seared. Uh, it's, it's really a brilliant idea. Uh, so there are they're thinking outside the box to get through the pandemic, but I think that's also the future of sanctuaries. I think that people who can't go to a rolling hill could, on a webcam, see what these animals are doing and experience it vicariously and uh, with different camera angles where they can see these animals. So uh, I think the sky's the limit, but 
For those who criticize sanctuaries, I would say, well, when you're doing something that's more effective, then come back and talk to me because everybody's a critic, right? I mean, they're very hard to run. And uh, I think they've changed a lot of hearts and minds. People come out in groups and yes, we can't talk to everybody individually, but now thanks to uh, technology, they can orchestrate an interaction with a farm animal through Zoom. It's incredible. I mean, look what look at Dan McKenna from Barn Sanctuary and getting his own show on Animal Planet. And that's been seen by millions of people seeing Dan interacting with the animals and having that bond with the animals. And, you know, some of his videos have been viewed tens of millions of times. Yes. Some of the most beautiful, you know, I get goosebumps thinking about it, the most beautiful moments and the sacrifices that he has made as a person, his own personal life, his emotional well-being, his mental health. You know, Dan has, you know, suffered deeply to, to, to sacrifice for these, these, these individuals. And I think, you know, I talk about this a lot to people uh, about the nature of animal life and that, you know, for most of human existence, animals or non-human animals have been seen as sort of automatons, as sort of mindless creatures who have no emotions and have no thoughts and no individual life, inner lives. I think that for us, you know, a sanctuary, an animal sanctuary is an opportunity to demonstrate that animals are unique, just like us. They dream like us. They sleep like us. They smell like us and breathe like us. They see the world through eyes, just like us, through beauty, you know, the, a world of color, probably in many animals, many more colors than we do, you know, and they have their own intimate lives with their own intimate personalities, with interactions with their best friends. Cows have best friends. Who knew <laughs> that cows right. have best friends? Right, they have friends? babysitters. They have babysitters. You know? Yeah, and and showing people the beauty of these creatures that yes they may not be able to create symphonies and build giant buildings and bridges but they are beautiful and unique and and we should cherish them because when they're gone they're gone like us every single life that is unique that can give love is is a precious gift of the universe and i truly truly believe and i will take you know i will say this until i'm blue in the face and on my in my last breath that you know sentient life is a gift of this universe it's a precious 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 gift and that every single life from the tiniest little chick to the largest blue whale is a precious gift from this universe and that we must do everything we can to protect it because every sentient life that is born into this world has a right to be free of oppression and violence and unnecessary suffering obviously the natural world is full of suffering naturally but unnecessary suffering because of things like a burger or a sandwich or a bag of pork scratchings. I don't know if you have pork scratchings in America, pigskin. You know, that kind of unnecessary suffering is is something that we should definitely do away with because, you know, as Earthling Ed says as well, till he's blue in the face, he talks about is, you know, he often talks about the like the value of a of a life, this wonderful, beautiful life. Is it really worth a sandwich? You know, and I, I really believe it isn't, you know, and I think, you know, there's so many wonder as, you know, I'm not preaching to the converted yet, but there's so many wonderful alternatives or actually we're now calling them upgrades, milk upgrades, yes, milk upgrades, upgrades. <laughs> upgrades. You know, that should we, should we really devalue life in such a way by, by being so just frivolous with it. And, and I think, you know, sanctuaries are the answer to that. And, Yes, you know, farmed animals are bred into existence in their billions and eventually 
when we stop using farmed animals, you know, maybe they won't exist in the future, but for now they are that bridge between humanity's past and, and our future. But when it comes to sort of different ways of kind of communicating this message, we all are unique. We all use uh, social media in different ways. We've all got different styles, but there is a lot of infighting and a lot of criticism. We just touched on criticism earlier. There's a lot of critics in the vegan community, but also outside the vegan community as well. How have you sort of, I mean, have you experienced much of the sort of criticism and 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 and, and how is the best way to deal with it? Because I know a lot of young activists message me and say, I don't know how to deal with the criticism. I'm, I'm often being told I'm not vegan enough. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. And they really struggle with it. Yeah, I think we, we have to be compassionate to each other. Be compassionate to your fellow vegans. And if you are running around being the vegan police, you know, look in the mirror because the chances are that you're not 100% perfect in everything you do and everything, every single thing you purchase, do you follow the supply line all the way back? I mean, you can find a lot of cruelty in a cell phone and I feel guilty about it. Uh, I think a cell phone is a lot more necessary than obviously a ham sandwich, but there's cruelty built into a lot of products. You know, there's this whole controversy over coconut oil now that uh, some companies are exploiting and having monkeys, ripping monkeys away from their mothers and tying them to trees and having them pick coconuts all day. And now uh, PETA is coming up with, has come up with a list of good companies and bad companies. Olive oil, there's countries, I believe in Spain, they're using these giant sucking machines at night to suck up the olives and it's sucking in wild, you know, the, the animals. So you have to be careful about what olive oil you buy. And uh, I would say boycott Spanish olive oil right now until uh, we end that horror. And uh, so, you know, you could be at this all day. And that's why um, it's important to have vegan certified products. I mean, not all sugar is vegan because some of it's uh, dried through bones. I've gave up sugar, processed sugar in December. So uh, I'm trying to use just... Um, natural sugars like uh, dates and stevia and things of that nature. But um, yeah, I, I think we have to keep our eye on the prize. And yes, I've had my share of debates because I love to argue. I'm an argumentative person. It's one of my character defects. I do enjoy it. Uh, but uh, I don't think it should get ugly and it shouldn't get personal. And uh, I would just urge everybody, if I see something like that, I run in the opposite direction because I've seen that really good organizations get taken down because of infighting and the bad guys are all organized and they're all working together. And like the organized crime families, they, they are not doing this. So we have to be careful that we don't tear each other apart. And we have to realize if you're frustrated and angry, you're not frustrated and angry at the vegan who might be doing it a little different than you are doing it, or uh, you would have him do something else a little different, but you're angry at the people who are killing the animals. Save, save it all for the institutions, not even the people. I mean, the slaughterhouse workers are exploited too. They're poor immigrants, almost overwhelmingly people of color. They have very few legal protections. They're dying now. So they're victims as well. Even some of the ranchers and farmers, you know, let's have compassion for them. They, a lot of them want out. Uh, it's an evil system. Let's fight the system, not each other. And if you don't like how somebody's doing something, just hit the pause button and just say, mm, okay, I'm going to do it differently myself. You don't have to confront that person and make personal attacks. And 
get into, you know, this, especially on social media where there's a lot of f- uh, things flying back and forth. I really try to stay away from it uh, as much as I can um, mm. and just really avoid it. I I agree. I, I always, my advice to people is take, you know, if someone comes at you, comes for you, take a breath, you know, maybe take a day to respond. And if, mm-hmm. and if you still feel angry about what they've said, maybe, you know, advise them that they've, you know, crossed a line and, you know, that you're doing your best. And- Let me say this. I have a different opinion, if I may respectfully say this, because yeah. when I was on television for many years, 38 years, if you didn't get hate mail, there was something wrong. <laughs> I'm talking about our friends, you know, within the community. Right. I, I don't yeah. mean tr- like sort of your 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 run of the mill garden troll. Right. I, I so I agree actually. You don't know, when respond. People, yeah, that's trolls, my my yeah. opinion is don't respond. And trolls don't respond. But when it comes to people respond. within your own com- when it comes to people within your own community, I mean people you're shoulder to shoulder with at protests and marches who coming at you with criticism telling you that you're not a real vegan you know that can be can hurt and I have a lot of people who've messaged me and I've experienced it myself as well we're routinely told you're clearly not real vegans you know you're you're only in it for the money I mean as if there's so much money in vegan news media (laughs) Um, you know I'm, I'm routinely told and criticized by people within our own community that we're not vegan enough that we're we're covering too much celebrity news that we're not covering enough of this or that, you know, and we, we've, you know, Carlson and I have worked very, very hard and sacrificed a lot to build what we've built. And I think. And you've done an incredible job and I admire you. I admire you so much. Thank you. The proof is in the pudding though. And the point is, is that it isn't always. Is that vegan pudding? Yeah, but you're vegan pudding. <laughs> but the thing is, is that, you know, we have a very clear strategy here at PBN. And our strategy is to go mainstream and to be mainstream. And to do that, we need to make some sacrifices, but also to play the game in a very specific way. Because, you know, human psychology is very intricate. Um, and that actually, you know, we want to build a huge media empire. And then once we're large enough, we can then start to throw our weight around and then start taking on larger organizations and, you know, have, I don't want to give away our secrets, but, you know, once you get to a certain size and will, you know, will I am. Yes. The musician, he's vegan, very yeah. passionate vegan said very famously, I wouldn't eat any, anything that had, you know, eyes, or a mother or cries at night or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, wonderful man, very eccentric, but wonderful. Love, love yeah. him. He, you know, he said, that when he started his music, you know, he he just created music for the masses. He created music that was sort of this, you know, ephemeral pop music that people dance to at parties and, and forget about. But now that he's bigger and he has, you know, millions of fans, he's now able to do the work that he really cares about because he knows that people are listening. He, you know, but if he had started with his wacky, crazy, you know, off the wall kind of lyrics, challenging people, that people would have switched off because they were like, who is this guy coming along and challenging our belief system? And I think that that sometimes there is this thought there. And I'm, I'm not saying, you know, don't water down your message. But I think sometimes we have to be cautious about, you know, take something very simple like your personal Facebook page. If you are sharing animal suffering videos in every single post on your Facebook page, people are going to unfollow you. And you will, no one will be listening. So it is important to temper your message with positivity, with f- amazing vegan food, with you know wonderful stories about people transforming their health and their and their well being, and you know, and and 
you know, show the animal suffering. But if we overwhelm people from the onset with all this suffering, people unfortunately turn away. So, yeah, you know, so there has course. to be, and then, and you do this with Jane Unchained as well. You know, your, your, your platform is a variety show really of all kinds of wonderful things. And, you know, we have to remember that yes, when we're seeing the suffering and, and we feel, you know, the horrors of what these animals go through, we want to tell the world, we want to shout about it from as loud, you know, as loudly as possible. But we have to remember that human psychology is pretty specific in the sense that when people see something horrific, they, for the most part, turn away from it. So we don't want to desensitize people. But that being said, you know, when people come at us with criticism about how we're doing it, I think that if we put our hands on our hearts and we say to ourselves, we believe in what we're doing, that we know what we're doing is changing lives and and there are people listening and there are pe- people going vegan, then we're doing our job, right? And that if people have opinions and views, you know, then that's just what they are, opinions and views. And we've got to just keep going as far as, far and as strong as we can. Take it as a compliment. That's what I'm saying. It's like yeah. the hate mail is a sign of success, it is. It is. You know, it is true. Because if you weren't, if you weren't stirring up other people, then you wouldn't. Uh, you know, I don't think we'd be doing our work. <laughs> exactly. But, it just comes so with the territory. It does. So, what's in the future for uh, Jane Unchained? What What can we expect next? We are working on something super exciting. It is a new app called Plant Based Neighbor, and right now it's in beta testing as a website, plantbasedneighbor.com. I urge every human who is plant-based to sign up immediately because we want to connect every vegan around the world, uh, starting with their neighbors, but also they can reach out and they can connect with vegans across the globe. And so you list your profession if you want. And uh, that way, let's say you're a hairdresser and you're vegan. I want a hairdresser. I want to go to a vegan hairdresser. And so there's a great way to create a veganomy through this so that um, you are hiring people in your neighborhood because a lot of work that you do, a lot of money you spend has to be spent on people who are geographically close to you, a hairdresser, a handyman, a plumber, even an accountant, a bookkeeper. So you can, through this app, get to know people and you can hire uh, a vegan to do something that you would prefer to have a vegan do than a non-vegan because you're giving money to somebody who's not going to use it to buy uh, animal products. Additionally, you can mobilize with vegans in your neighborhood, have a block party, a ride share to uh, a veg fest, uh, just have connections with vegans so you don't feel like you're surrounded by carnists and you're in the trenches fighting alone for animals. You will psychologically feel better knowing Uh, that there are other vegans in your neighborhood and it's just going to be fun. So I would urge everybody to sign up. Um, We want to help create the veganomy. And I think when all vegans start spending their money with other vegans for their services, this is going to really propel our world. Amazing. Yeah, it sounds great. I can't wait to register and uh, we'll definitely share it out and do a shout out on PBN for you. That Thank sounds you. like a great, a great community. Before I let you go, I always love to ask my guests this last question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just <laughs> you and a pig, <laughs> you obviously don't eat the pig because you're vegan. And if I gave you one vegan dish, one music <laughs> album and one book, what would you take with you? Oh, wow. Okay. For one music album, I would probably say 
a classical music piece like Bach. You know, I like uh, classical music and something uplifting and acoustic. Unfortunately, my neighbor has ruined classic rock for me by playing it too loud. (laughs) So as far as a book, oh my gosh, well, what's my favorite book ever? I would have to say The Trial by Franz Kafka, because I'd I'd feel better about my situation after reading that again. (laughs) (laughs) And my dish would be my banana ice cream. Because I still do have a sweet tooth, but I've figured out a way using bananas, very small amount of coconut cream from a company that does not imprison monkeys and um, other fruits with stevia and dates. And I've created this incredible nice cream that is so delicious and it has no processed sugar and obviously 100% vegan. So my banana ice cream. Mm, amazing and you'll probably have all those fruits on the desert island so you have no problem problem <laughs> with that <laughs> miss jane Bettis mitchell thank you so much for joining us on the pbin podcast uh, i could probably talk to you for another hour or two because there is so much to talk about and i feel like we probably will need an episode two uh in the not too distant future because there's lots of other topics i want to touch on with you but we'll save that for next time yeah thank you so much it's been a real pleasure I love you, Robbie Lockie. You're a hero for the movement, and you and Klaus are changing the world. Thank you, Jane. Thanks for listening, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and we'll be back next time with more veganism, health, fashion, food, technology, and everything in between. <laughs>